Well, Acts 11 we are up to, and uh, we're going to see the video in just a second. And let's thank God for the word here tonight. And then we'll watch it, and then we'll pull it apart and get it in our spirits. Amen? Amen? Father, we just thank you tonight for the book of Acts, a blueprint for us as a New Testament church. Father, as you kicked off the church age, and we were in the time of the Gentiles as you're bringing in harvest, Father, I pray that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened, that we would understand how vital it is for us to not only be in the kingdom of God, but be participants of what you're doing. It's time to bring in the harvest, Lord God. The laborers are few. We want to be useful in your hands. We want to be not just spectators, but participators in the kingdom of God. I pray tonight as this chapter comes alive and we see theological shifts here and the life of Peter, and we see things being set up for the church that are still in place today, Lord God, that we would be excited to take our part and do our part and bear fruit in the kingdom of God. And I ask all this in Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen. Amen. Enjoy chapter 11. Apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, he went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Peter began and explained everything to them precisely as it had happened. I was in the city of Joppa praying. And in a trance, I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to where I was. I looked into it, and I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds of the air. And then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, 
God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church, taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Things are changing. Who likes change? One person that didn't take their medicine today. Change is tough. And theological change is going to be really tough for a lot of these Jewish believers. Why? Because God had drummed it into their heads for the longest time that the Gentiles were filthy and not to be associated with and not to be, uh, you know, there was no fellowship between them. We're going to see here that there's an issue that a person who was considered of Jewish lineage would eat with them. And all of a sudden, now the Holy Spirit, through the power of God, is expanding the kingdom and these Gentiles are becoming brothers and sisters to the early church. And this is an amazing shift. And so Peter's group has this amazing experience at Cornelius' house. And, you know, the spirit falls down and all of these things happen. Verse 11, uh, chapter 11 shows us the ripple effect that this has on the body of Christ. These were big doings. This wasn't just a little, you know, side event here, or a little footnote. This was a big shift, and there's a ripple effect on the body of Christ as the news travels. Now, understand something. Everything that happens in the church affects the entire church. Now, we don't really believe that because we think, well, if it, if it happens here, it affects me. But if it happens in some church in another 
continent, in another country, in another state. I mean, let's, let's be honest, you know, we a lot of times think, well, you know, that's their issue or that's their problem or that's, you know, their dilemma to deal with. But there's a ripple effect throughout the entire body of Christ. Whether we feel it or not, whether we are touched by it right away, it, it has an impact. And you say, well, how do you know that? Because the church is a body. If you get up at night and you stub your little tiny toe, the smallest toe you got, it's not important, it's just a little toe. Look at this big body, it's a little toe. You stub that little toe, you will feel it in every fiber of your being. If you slam your pinky in the car door, all of a sudden you will be thoroughly acquainted with how sensitive your pinky is and how much it can ruin your day. I don't even like standing like this here. When one part of the body hurts, the whole part of the body, the whole body hurts. And I want you to see that. Even if we just accept that in theory, we might not feel certain things, but the body is affected and everything good and anything bad that happens in the body, there's a ripple effect sent throughout the body. Now, the gospel had been preached exclusively to the Jews up to this point. So the, the, the apostles, they were going around from synagogue to synagogue. They were preaching the gospel and they were seeing what Jews would accept it and those that would be converted were added to the church. Now, that's proper. Why? Because salvation is for the Jew first and then the Greek. You know the scripture, right? Salvation is who? Of the Jews. Jesus is and was a Jewish rabbi. He's a Jew, not a Gentile. So salvation is first coming to the Jews, but now God is making this shift. And I, I can't overemphasize enough how huge this is. Now, news of what happened at Cornelius' house spreads really quick. In verse 1 here, it says, Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard, say heard, that the Gentiles had received the word of God. So news travels quick. It spreads fast. And all those throughout the region there of Judea, they're hearing through what? The grapevine. You know, there always has been a grapevine. Do you know what you need to spread information? Feet and ears. That's it. Okay? People walk from place to place. They bring stories. They bring news. Uh, you know, they, they, they told tales. And so the news spreads throughout the whole region that this event happened at Cornelius' house. And the grapevine is working there in verse 2 and 3. By the time Peter gets back, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem had gotten an earful. And when they saw Peter come to Jerusalem, uh, and they saw Peter coming back there, they said, in Jerusalem, Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised, so these are Jewish people, took issue with him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Uh, Peter's about to give an explanation, but I want you to take a look at this here. The news spreads, it beats Peter back to where he's headed, but when he gets back, they really come at him and they're kind of aggressive. And I want you to see that. Now, the aggressive way in how they confront him and th the fact that they're willing to make Peter accountable for his actions is not all bad. Now it's quiet. Because you know what? These guys were brothers in the Lord. Peter was definitely, you know, a leader, if not the leader in the church. Yet these guys were aggressive in getting right up in his face and questioning his actions. And you might think, well, these are bad guys. These are, you know, these guys, you know, they, they're out of line. Who do they think they are? I want, to, I want you to see it from a different angle. This is actually a good thing. 
Thank God for people who are willing to keep us accountable for our actions. They might have said, well, who am I? You know, he's Peter. I'm nobody. I wasn't there. He knew Jesus. He hung out with him. You know, let me just shut up. And then there's no confrontation. But the fact that they were willing to get right up in his face over what he had done is not all bad. I like the fact that they were willing to go after big, bad Peter and say, hey, what are you doing? We all need people like that in our lives. Now, we don't like it at the time, but if we listen to correction when we're out of line, it's going to save us some lumps and some misery and some drama. Some of us, if we would have listened to people who were trying to correct us at certain junctures of our life, wouldn't be in the situations we are in now. Don't look at your spouse. Just look straight ahead. You're not listening. You're looking at your spouse. I'm glad that they wanted to hold him accountable. I'm glad that they were willing to question what he was doing. I'm glad that they weren't afraid of him, but they called him on the carpet, if you will. And, and you got to understand, remember what Peter did here, what they accused him of and what he did for hundreds of years had been legally, legalistically, theologically out of bounds. It was the wrong thing to do. If he had done this any other time, but after he had seen that vision and after the Holy Spirit prompted to him to do it, and, and, and now that God was reaching out to the Gentiles, if he would have done it any other time, they would have been right in calling him on the carpet, and they would have been right that he was wrong and needed to repent. We all could use more accountability in our lives. Just say amen. If you, if, amen. Even if you got to do it by faith, say amen. amen. We all need more accountability. It would allow us to stay on track. It would create much less drama in the body of Christ. It would be safer for all of us. It's amazing what happens in the body because nobody wants to sit under correction. Nobody wants to answer for their actions. And we see entire ministries and ministers and movements and even denominations spin out of control and go off track because no one keeps anyone accountable. So they come at him, and they're a little aggressive, and we see the good side of that. In verse 4, Peter, there again, now this is, this is Peter, Peter who puts his foot in his mouth. The only time Peter takes his foot out of his mouth is to change feet. He's always said, you know, when Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan, to you. When Jesus calls you the devil, you got a problem with your mouth. Okay, so Peter, now this is Peter. Now, I want you to see the total difference in him. In verse four, he begins to give an explanation to them. He says, uh, you know, but Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in, or, in an orderly sequence. See, this is so not Peter. It, it wasn't just a, you know, a, a swing of the sword. It wasn't just this out of control, you know, emotional outburst. But in an orderly sequence saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying and in a trance, I saw a vision. So he begins to share what happened to him. Now, I want you to see this here. Peter makes a defense of his actions without becoming defensive. This is so important Wednesday night. Whenever, now if, if somebody came at us like they just came at Peter, a lot of us would get defensive and we would get a little snippety at least. We would get, some of us would get downright nasty. Some of us would start to say things that we would later have to repent for. Man, it's so quiet on Wednesday night. Do you guys have a tough day? Why don't you just play catch or something instead? Get the beach balls out. 
But Peter doesn't do any of that. He makes a defense of his actions without becoming defensive. And I want you to pick up on that because it's so not Peter, it's the refining work of the Holy Spirit. He accurately and patiently articulates the details of what happened to him. This is a skill that all of us need to develop. It's really hard not to become defensive when you feel attacked. Can we say amen? Amen. You know, some people, it's not even what they say sometimes, it's the way they say it. Look, I mean, some of us, the way we came up, the way we grew up, you know, there's certain, you don't come at somebody a certain way. Come on. You know, I know there's been a lot of strides in modern dentistry, but you just, if you talk like that, you're going to be missing chiclets. Anybody else? Some of you grew up under a rock. You know, in the country, did you get in arguments with the cattle? Yes, okay. But, you know, they come at him hard, and he doesn't, he doesn't get hard back. And I want you to see that that's something all of us can learn from. No matter how we were brought up, no matter where we were brought up, God wants to refine us. Someone say amen. amen. And that's a good thing, amen. It's, you know, sometimes we use these things as an excuse, but when we're in Christ, he's, being, he's conforming us to his image. So Peter's looking a lot less like Peter and more like Jesus. He makes a defense without becoming defensive. Uh, he, he starts to articulate things very clearly. And, you know, we need to learn this skill. Why? Because if we want to impact others and do it in a way that honors God, we have to learn to control our emotions and to control our mouths. And if you don't take anything home with you on this lesson, on this chapter from chapter 11, just, you know, take this home with you. You and I need to control our emotions and our mouths. Or no matter what we do, we're going to do it in a way that even if we get the right effect, it's not going to honor God. Wow. Sobering. So Peter's showing some good growth here. He articulates what happened in verse five through eight. He recaps the details of his vision. He tells the brothers in Jerusalem who are concerned about him and confused about his behavior. He said, this is what I saw. It was from the Lord. It was a vision, this big sheet coming down from heaven and all kinds of unclean animals on it. And, and I was told to kill and eat and I refused to do that. So he's, he's given them the details and he, he's taking his time and he's being patient with them. And they're listening to everything. Verse 9, God's point of this whole vision with the sheep coming down and the unclean animals and Peter not wanting to eat them, God's whole point was what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. What God has declared to be clean no longer consider unholy. And he told them, God showed me this three times. And there again, that we said that number was important. Why? Because anytime something is mentioned three times in sequence in scripture, it's to make an emphatic point. That's why the angels cry, holy, 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 when they see God. Because he's not just holy. He's not just holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy. The emphatic point of this dream was that God is now calling something clean that was formerly unclean, and he says, don't you call it unclean anymore. So he shares the vision. Uh, they're getting the point here. Verse 10, he, 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 he makes sure to tell them he saw it three times. These guys are getting what he's saying. Verse 11, Peter does a great job communicating the, 
rapid progression of things that were happening here. And, you know, he, he really, uh, he's really getting these guys to buy into what the Holy Spirit has given him. He said, behold, at that moment, so he sees a vision. And then all of a sudden, at that moment, three men appeared at the house which I was staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. The Spirit told me to go with them without misgiving. So there again, he's saying, you know, I saw a vision and Cornelius had a visitation from an angel. So he's linking all this together for them. He's saying, as soon as I was done with the vision and God made the point three times, uh, there's a knock on the door and guess who's there? The men who've been sent with me. See, he's doing a good job showing the progression of things and the, the rapidity of how God was moving here. All of this gives the people the sense that this was not something man put together or it wasn't something Peter did out of a whim or out of a reflex or just made a bad decision, but this was divinely orchestrated. And there again, these guys are listening to what Peter's saying. They respect him, but they're a little confused by his behavior, and they ask him to give an account, and he does. Now, God had spoken to Peter in a vision, and now he points to the leading of the Holy Spirit in verse 12. This is important that, you know, the Holy Spirit is the one who's orchestrating this. He says, the Spirit told me. That's a bold statement, isn't it? You know, a lot of people throw the thus saith the Lord around. I've heard people say, thus saith the Lord, and then I heard what they had to say, and I'm saying, the, the Lord didn't thus saith that. <laughs> because it doesn't line up with his word. Have you ever heard stuff like that? The Lord told me to leave my spouse. No, he didn't. You had too many chili dogs, and you watched too much TV, and you came up with that yourself. But he says, the Holy Spirit told me, the Spirit told me to go with them without misgiving. So he's saying, I, I know that I'm not supposed to eat with these guys. I know that I'm not supposed to go with these guys. Hey, I'm a Jew too. I'm a, I get it, guys. I understand. But the Holy Spirit told me, what are you going to do with that? Well, you should have argued with the Holy Spirit and told him about the Mosaic laws and that the fact that they're on. No, no, you can't argue with the Holy Spirit. And so he's not just pulling the Holy Spirit card. The Holy Spirit really did speak to him. He really did have a vision. Uh, Cornelius really did see an angel. So it's divine orchestration here, and all of it is working together in concert. And these guys are getting the sense of that. Now, the Spirit told me to go without misgiving, so without making a fuss. Then he mentions that the six brethren went with him, uh, so that he took that little entourage with him. Remember all that? Did it seem like, you know, why did he take these guys with him. We're going to get to that in just a second. But he says, you know, and these six brothers went with me. And, and that's an important detail. Do you know, in the Jewish legal system, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, what every fact was established. If you went in court and you had two witnesses testify against you, that would be considered a fact in the court. Now, he brought six people with him, so that's triple what you would need to prove something in a court of law. And all six of these guys are saying, yeah, it happened just the way Peter said it happened. It ha and, 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 and they're testifying. They're adding legitimacy to his claims here. So it wasn't an accident. And he might not have known why he brought them with him, but God made sure that he did have those six guys with him. And they were witnesses to what God had done. You know, sometimes, you know, 
and, and you say, well, why is God going through all this to convince these people? Because this is a huge shift for them. They're not just going to lay down thousands of years of, you know, the Mosaic law and all of these traditions that they've been taught and go, oh, I guess, you know, it's cool to eat and hang out with Gentiles now. No, it, it has to be beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is involved, the Holy Spirit orchestrated it, that these men witness what is going on here, and they're seeing the fruit of it. So he's got six witnesses. Uh, this could hold up in court. Peter's word is being validated. And again, these guys are listening to him. Verse 13 and 14, he also shares, uh, mentions the visitation from the angel. That's another component here that we've talked about. And that the angel told Cornelius that he was to go get Peter and Peter was to give them a message. So the message was the preaching of the gospel. Cornelius didn't know what the message was, but there again, this is confirmation to Peter's vision. Why? Because, you know, don't call what's holy, what's you know, formerly unclean is now holy. So don't resist this and go and preach in the gospel. So all this is hinging together now. Verse 15, Peter's telling him, in the middle of my presentation of the gospel, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he'd fallen upon us in the beginning. Look how he says it here. This is this is a powerful testimony here, and every word of it is important. He said, and as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. So he's saying, look, guys, the same way we received the Holy Spirit, the same way God moved upon us, the same way we were filled, the same way we began to speak in other tongues, just how it happened to us in the beginning, it happened to them. So the Gentiles weren't junior Christians. They weren't secondary Christians. They were, they were believers equal and, and filled with the Holy Spirit and received it the same way as everybody else did. Now, that's a very uh, powerful point that he makes there, that the Holy Spirit is moving upon all men the same way. It's a game changer. Verse 16, uh, Peter remembers Jesus' promise here. Now, Jesus said a lot of things to his disciples that they didn't understand at the moment. Did you ever hear something that you knew was from the Lord and, and you knew it was awesome, but you didn't quite get it? Maybe you heard something in a sermon and you're like, wow, that's awesome. I don't get it. So what do you do with it? <laughs> well, you can come talk to me after me. And we'll see if we can both get it. But sometimes you just tuck it into your heart. What did Mary do with all the things that Jesus said that she didn't get? She, she kept all those things in her heart. Same thing with the disciples. He said things that they didn't understand at the time, but they tucked it into their hearts. Why? Because they would begin to make sense as all of this would unfold. It said, and I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Peter says, this is it. This is what Jesus was talking about. I, I get it now. I understand. Yeah, John's baptism, water, cool. I understand it. But this baptism of the Holy Spirit that we received, these guys received it just like we did. God is doing a new thing, and it's awesome, and it's all about what he's doing. This is not our idea. This is God's intention, God's plan. So he's communicating to them. Uh, verse 17, the clincher is, you know, basically Peter ties it all together with this. Um, he says, therefore, if God gave to them the same gift he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, what was I, uh, he says, who was I that I could stand in the way of God? So 
<clears throat> that's a really great way to, you know, sum this up here. It's not like he's like passing the buck and blaming it on God. But truly, if, if God sovereignly did this, if he orchestrated it, if he gave a vision and an angel and the spirit fell, Peter's saying to the guys, hey, guys, what am I going to do? Am I going to tell God no? Am I going to tell the Holy Spirit no? And am I, am I not going to do this because it violates our tradition? Wow. Interesting concepts, isn't it? That when God's doing something, who are any of us to say no to a sovereign move of the Spirit? Yet there are whole parts of the body of Christ that have said no to certain things about the Spirit and formed denominations around the fact that, well, about this thing about the Holy Spirit, we, we say no. Wow. God help us. Who are we to say no? Now, we don't want strange fire, and we don't want false things, and we don't want man-made stuff, but everything that the Lord has, everything that the Lord's doing, everything that the Holy Spirit's doing, we want that. We want the genuine, and we're not willing to, you know, we can't stand against anything that's of God. And so Peter's saying, guys, you know, this was all God. It was not me. You know, I know you're a little bent out of shape with me, but he's like, if you got an issue with it at this point, you need to take it up with the Lord. And I think that's a good way uh, to deal with this situation. You know, there are a lot of things that stand in the way of God doing his will. There's a lot of things that stand in the way of the kingdom of God and a lot of the things in churches that stand in the way. Well, what are they? Well, the big thing that stands in the way of the kingdom of God is fear. People are afraid of what God is doing sometimes, so they say, that's not God. <laughs> How about tradition? Tradition stands in the way of the kingdom of God. Jesus said, you, you, you nullify the word of God because of your traditions, he said to the Pharisees. Wow. Tradition can nullify the word? Yeah, when men choose to follow traditions rather than the word of God. Man's agenda, man's pride, man's need to be in control. All of these things resist the kingdom of God. You and I can't control God. And if we had a God that we could control, he wouldn't be God. Now, I'm not talking about weird stuff and unbiblical things. I'm talking about resisting a move of the Holy Spirit. Wow. It still happens all the time. God, help us. Don't let it happen here. We want everything you have for us, God, and we don't want to stand in the way of your will for Full Gospel Center. Come on, church. Say amen. amen. So Peter's like, can't stand in the way. Verse 18, his testimony squelches all their objections. I love this. This is a great response here. It says, when they heard this, they quieted down. They had nothing to say. <laughs> Isn't that a great response? Sometimes the right response is to say nothing. But, you know, they chew on that for a second. They quieted down, and then they glorified God. This is beautiful. It took a second. They make the shift. They, they feel the witness of the Holy Spirit in this whole thing from start to finish. So they, their objections go away, and they glorify God, saying, Well, then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. This, is, this shows that these guys have a good heart. Amen. 
that they're willing to stretch and they're willing to grow and they're willing to flow with the Holy Spirit. They quiet down and instead of just saying, oh, oh well, you know, I guess, all right, if that's the way. No, then they, they worship God and they're excited about it. What a beautiful conclusion. Well, then God has granted to the Gentiles repentance. I mean, this is a huge shift for them. Remember, the church began to spread at this point and now it was going to spread at even a, a quicker pace. Why? Because the pool of people that they can now preach the gospel to just exploded. It wasn't go to this little group of Jews, this little group of Jews, visit this synagogue, visit this synagogue, walk out in the sunlight, see people with, with ears and start to preach. Amen. Wow. The world is a mission field. The world all around us is, a, is a, a, a harvest that's ready for the taking that you and I can sow the gospel and, and preach the gospel and share the gospel under the leading of the Holy Spirit and see lives change. What an awesome thing it is. So verse 19, the church is spreading and here's why it's spreading. We talked about this before. It said, so then those who were scattered, see scattered, because of the persecution that occurred uh, con connection uh, with Stephen in Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews alone. So we said this, the church was scattered. Why? Because of persecution. And we noticed that the scattering, though it was uncomfortable and persecution was uncomfortable, it was profitable to the church because everywhere those Christians went that were scattered, they made new converts. And it was God's way of spreading the gospel. It said in verse 20, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. So I want you to see that right there. That's an awesome thing too. You see, God is not you know, this is not one person quarterbacking the whole thing here. God is beginning to move in people. And we're going to see Paul's called to speak to the Gentiles. He's called to harvest the Gentiles. He's going to be the greatest apostle to the Gentiles that ever was. But he's not even on the scene yet. God uses Peter, a Jewish guy who really doesn't want anything to do with Gentiles. Now he's using these other guys who are going to just, you know, spontaneously begin to preach to the Greeks. Where did that come from? It was Holy Spirit birth. You see how God is doing all this? So no one person can get the control or get the glory or be the one who say, yeah, this was my idea. God is doing it. And, you know, these guys begin to, these guys begin to just preach the gospel in such a way that, you know, all right, let's see what happens if we preach it to the Gentiles. And what happens is a large number of them believe. What did that mean? They repented and they came to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the text gives us a clue to why their evangelistic outreach was so successful. It says God was with them. Did you hear that? They decided to do it. Why? Because the Holy Spirit prompted them. They were obedient. They preached the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. When that gospel was loosed in the power of the Holy Spirit, some hearts mixed it with faith and it changed their lives. And it's exactly the way it works right now today. You and I are just responsible to speak it. You're throwing handfuls of seed. Just throw that seed. Just throw it everywhere you go. Throw it on whoever. You say, well, some people might go, well, I don't want any of that on me. Well, you have a grouchy day. God bless you. I'll pray for you. But some people are going to go, yeah. Wow. Man, if you've ever picked ripe fruit, 
If you've ever spoken to someone that has been waiting for you because they want, they want salvation, oh, it is the most exciting thing. You don't have to beg them into the kingdom. You don't have to sweat them into the kingdom. You don't have to drag them, headlock them, carry them in. You, you just say, hey, you know, Jesus, yes, 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 yes. Maybe in the middle of your message, the Holy Ghost is going to fall on them, amen, and they're just going to get filled with the Spirit of God. Wow, you look excited out there, praise God. Hey, this stuff is for us, too. The book of Acts is still going. It's a prototype for us. And so the gospel is shared. The Greeks hear God was with them. That's the key. If God's with us, we can't fail. You say, okay, pastor, well, how do I get God to be with me? You don't. See, that's what we do. Well, okay, if God's going to be with me and I can't fail, then I got to figure out how to get God with me. We don't get God with us. We get with God. This side wasn't excited about that. So, see, let's see how I can make God do my thing. No, we got to stop doing our thing and do his thing. When we're doing his thing, he doesn't, we don't have to make him get with us. We get with him. And then all of a sudden, everything we touch succeeds and is blessed and there's fruit. And if we would just stop doing our own thing and do his thing. Men are always trying to get, <laughs> men are always trying to get God to be with them. Well, God is for us and God's against you. You know, I mean, people start wars and they start fights and they start division and they say, well, God's on our side. God's on his side. Get on his side. So God was with them. They produced fruit. A large number of people are saved. Now, in verse 22, we see the grapevine in the church is still working very well. News travels really fast. In verse 22, you know, they're hearing about Cornelius' house. Now they hear about this group of Gentiles being saved here. And it says the news about them, who? All these converts, these Gentile converts, reached the ears of those in the church of Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. So uh, there again, I want you to see the grapevine and how it works. It works fast. They don't have TV. They don't have satellite. They don't have radio. They just have feet and ears, yet news spreads like wildfire. You can't stop it at what God's doing. So the, the response is that here there's a revival in Antioch. A lot of Gentiles are being saved. What do they do in Jerusalem? They send Barnabas. What do they send him for? As you know, they send him as an apostolic emissary to go out there and verify and authenticate what's going on. You know, the gospel has to be protected because people preach half the gospel and half of something else. And before you know it, you've got apostasy and you've got a mess. So especially in the early church, they, they had these apostles that were to, you know, we see the, the, the parameters of apostolic ministry, that these guys were to verify and authenticate that this was really God, and then they were to preach good, solid theology to strengthen it. You know, people can get saved really quick, but with bad theology, they can go back, right back into what they got saved from really quick. It's important, you know, we've got to, you know, we've got to nurse these babes and we've got to protect them and keep the wolves away from them. And that's what we see here. The church's response is, well, you know, great for them. They're having revival. We're all about what's going on here in Jerusalem. We don't have time for that. No, they send Barnabas out. He, he reports on what's going on and he sees, you know, it is real. It is of the Holy Spirit. And he goes there and he begins to strengthen in verse 22 what the Holy Spirit has done. That's a picture of apostolic ministry. Now, what we're 
beginning to see here is a centralized apostolic leadership core in Jerusalem, and it's functioning like apostles should function. They're protecting and strengthening the early churches, amen? And so I want you to see there's church structure. Maybe you're not interested in church structure, but we need to understand it. Why? Because if we don't understand church structure, when it's out of order, we're not going to pick up on that either. There are certain people that say, I'm a bishop, I'm an apostle, I'm a prophet, I'm a this, I'm a that. And they're self-appointed, self-anointed. They don't fall into church structure. They, they, they didn't get called by the Holy Spirit. They, they call themselves. And if you've never experienced, if, if you're a seasoned saint, you're shaking your head right now. Because if you've been around the block, you've seen what goes on. Okay, that's why we need to understand church structure. You don't just appoint yourself. You don't just anoint yourself. You don't just say, I'm an apostle. People give themselves titles all the time. And you know what? If, if you are called and if you are anointed and if you have been appointed by the Holy Spirit, when you look at some of these people, you're going, uh-uh, nope. But there's a lot of sheep who look at them and go, oh, yeah, let me follow them right into the pit. Wow. It's dangerous. So that's why I take the time to talk about church structure as seen in scripture. And this is what we're seeing here. There's centralized leadership. There's a loose order of bishops that were in the early church. We see the apostolic ministry strengthening. They're not controlling. They're not, you know, we'll send all the money up to Jerusalem. No, they're not doing that. It's just that they are protecting the integrity of the gospel and they're nurturing the new believers to keep them strong. So, uh, Whatever you can glean from that and tuck into your heart, it's a good thing to understand. Barnabas witnesses the authentic move. He ministers. He labors with them. Uh, what's the first thing? Uh, in verse 24, it talks about Barnabas' character and his integrity. It says he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit. Amen? That's a good thing. You and I, if we're going to minister, we need to have, you know, we need to have integrity. We need to have good, solid character. Uh, we need to have fruit production that matches, you know, our walk needs to match our talk. Amen. And that's what Barnabas was that guy. And everybody, you know, saw that in him. And so notice who God uses, not the best, not the smartest, not the most popular, not the best looking. He uses people with the right heart who have integrity and who are available. Were the people smarter than Barnabas, smarter than Paul, smarter than Peter? Absolutely. We're so enamored with smart people. Oh, let me show you all of my degrees. Yeah, but when you're alone, do you have integrity? When, when you're by the computer by yourself, can we look at what you've been looking at? Now it's quiet. Barnabas was a good man. God acknowledged it, said he was full of the Holy Spirit. That's what we need in leadership. We need good men who are full of the Holy Spirit, who have a, a good, solid track record, who are willing to serve and have no motive but to strengthen and bolster the kingdom of God. Verse 24 uh, tells us you know, about his integrity and his character. Verse 25 through 26 tell us that it's Barnabas that actually goes to fetch Saul. Now, if you watch the rest of the scripture, it's Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. This time, it's Barnabas and Saul. And notice who's coming to the party late, Saul, who is not yet called Paul. God's going to do a transformation in Saul, turn him into Paul. But Paul is not the one, even though he's called to be the primary one who ministers to the Gentiles, I want you to see this. God sets up all of this without him. 
and then the baton is going to be passed to him. There again, God does these things so man can't take pride and boast and say, this was my idea, this was my doing. Do you see that? God doesn't share his glory with anyone. Get this, if you want to do anything for God and you're a glory hog, listen to me, you're going to be really frustrated by the doors that slam in your face. If you, if you need all that ego food that you got to puff yourself, I did this and I did that. I told you about some people that I've known, you know, they come off the mission field and it sounded like, you know, they were healing people, they were saving people, they, they were, uh, it was them. Jesus didn't even have to help them. Jesus was like, wow, good job, you know, hey man, Woo, you, look, you go, man. Ah, help us, Lord. That pride gets in the way. Oh, how he could use us if we would learn humility. So Barnabas goes in 25 and 26, and he goes to look for Saul. And uh, this is an interesting thing here in verse 25. This is like the, the prelude to what's to come. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So Barnabas brings Saul to Antioch. Uh, to Antioch, and for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So there again, shifts and game changers and uh, God setting things up and putting things into order here. And I want you to see behind the curtain how all this is orchestrated. God is doing all this so nobody could take the glory for it, but everybody does their part and the kingdom of God is advanced. Verse 27 through 30, we see that the body now begins to show a sense of unity and solidarity as, you know, there are some prophets that uh, come down here. Now they're Christians they're called Christians in Antioch. The church is growing. People are being saved. Now, at this time, some prophets came down to Jerusalem. Say prophets. Those people say, oh, the New Testament, there's no prophets. That's Old Testament stuff. There's no prophetic ministry in the church. Uh, this is New Testament here. See, it's the skinny part of the Bible here. And I see prophets. And they're prophesying. Okay? So... Yes, the prophetic ministry is a valid ministry in the church. Anyone who says it isn't is a theological mental midget, and they really don't belong teaching anyone. They need to sat, sit down and get taught. Okay? So here's the prophets, and they're prophesying. Don't tell me that there's no prophetic in the church. It's right here, and it's in other places. And in the epistles, it takes time to outline the parameters of how the prophetic should be used in the church. So this is an interesting thing that they come, and they're, they're giving predictive prophecy here. Um, the church is forming up as a body. We've got this centralized leadership core of apostolic leaders in Jerusalem. Uh, the churches are regional, but the headship is, is located in one spot there. So there's some structure. Now, Agabus foretells of a famine. So it's predictive prophecy. It's not just, you know, some kind of fluff. Uh, encourage, quote a scripture. No, this is from the Lord, a word from the Lord, and it's about a famine that's to come. And he, he tells that it's going to hit particularly hard in the Judea region there, and it's going to affect the brethren in the church. So what do they do? They take that prophetic warning from the Lord, and they take up a, a free will offering to help those brethren who are going to be afflicted. What's the, what's the importance of all this? They're, they're beginning to think just beyond their own little region. You see, the churches are popping up everywhere and they're peppered all throughout the area here. But now we see a sense of unity and solidarity to the point where this little church is caring about that church. Why? Because the church is a body. 
See how this is all forming up here? This is the infant stage of the body of Christ, yet we're seeing all the mechanisms that God is putting in place here. Unity is the most important thing. We have to be unified as a church. We need to care about our brothers and sisters in China who are persecuted. We need to care about our brothers and sisters in the Middle East who are being murdered. We need to care about that not just, oh, my church and my cushioned seat and the air conditioned. Oh, this is so good. And we have no concern for the rest of the body of Christ? That's wrong. That grieves the Father's heart. That's stubbing your pinky toe and, and not feeling it. Wow. So they're concerned. There's a prophetic warning. We're seeing a lot of elements come into play here. And they take up a free will. Say free will. No compulsory offerings, no shotgun offerings. Free will, all right, you with me? You don't give out of compulsion. You don't give because you're shamed to give. You don't give because they, they took a four-hour offering and they shook you upside down to see if they heard any change in your pockets. Come on, some of us have come out of those meetings. It's a free will offering. You give as they had need. They gave who, who had excess, who had great wealth, and they gave in proportion. And, and there's, there's some things about giving there we should look at because there again, some of that's out of balance in the body of Christ. They didn't give to get. They didn't sow a seed so they could get a big harvest. They just responded to a need out of love, out of unity, out of solidarity because they cared for the rest of the body of Christ. And they gave it to Paul and uh, they gave not to Paul. They gave it to Barnabas and Saul. There's no, there's no Paul and Barnabas yet. That's going to be another shift. But they gave it to them to hand deliver it to the brethren. So we're seeing church structure here, and we're seeing the the players rise uh, into their positions. And there again, God is making shifts. People's hearts are changing. The Jews are now entertaining the fact that the Gentiles are part of this thing, the kingdom of God. And the church is beginning to roll with some synergy here. And it's an exciting time. And I want to say something. As exciting as all this is, uh, even though it looks like you're thinking really hard now, it would be nice if you looked excited for a second. Okay. Thinking really hard. But as exciting as this is, I got to say there's probably no more exciting time to live than to right now. I mean, this is an exciting time to be alive. And if you say, well, there's nothing going on, then it's you. And, and, and if I say there's nothing going on, then it's me. And I got to get in the prayer closet and I got to tap into what God's doing because God is on the move. And he's saving people. He's changing lives. And, you know, we can be part of what God's doing. Amen? Amen. Father, we just thank you tonight for chapter 11. We thank you for all the things that we're seeing here. Uh, it's a Bible study, Lord. We dig in there and you show us great stuff. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for that. So teach us about leadership and structure and, and divinely orchestrated things. Father, help us to desire the things of the Spirit and not the man-made stuff. Father, we don't want man-made moves and we don't want man-made programs and we don't want what man could do. We want Holy Spirit-driven things. So move in our lives and speak to us and use us and Father, if there's things in us that are stumbling blocks, pride and ego and the, the need for glory and the, 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 the desire to have the credit, Father, purge those things from our hearts. Let it begin in this place with this group. Use us, Lord God, for your kingdom glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.